in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Chad Robinson. Chad, how are you doing? I'm very excited today, Russell. Yes, we're going big today, and to join us for a big, big podcast, we have a we have a tall guy, Chris Sattis. How are you doing, sir? Hey, I'm doing very good, and yourself? I'm good, I'm good. You're coming to us from the Virginia Beach area, is that right? That is correct. Virginia's for lovers and dinosaurs. Now, before we get going, I think you've got a pretty interesting project. Do you want to tell people a little bit about what do you do? Yeah, I have a podcast myself called What Do You Do? The uh, Career Podcast. It's more of like a career day uh, for anyone of all ages. You know of your important jobs like police, firemen, doctors, lawyers, etc. But there's jobs out there that I never knew existed, such as a chicken sexer. Their, their sole job is to sex the chickens, male, female, digital sign technicians, nuclear physicists. Like, I never really knew about that until I talked to one and learned what they do. Was it Denise Richards from uh, the, the Bond movie? No, no, uh, <laughs> no. But uh, it's, a, it's really interesting. Uh, pretty good lineup. Season one uh, finished about, gosh, three years ago. Um, and season two is in the works. So if you're hearing this and you want to be on a podcast, reach out to me and I'd love to interview you. And where do they reach out to you? What do you do podcast at gmail.com. Perfect. So if you want to tell people about what you do, talk to Chris and he'll help spread that message out there. So that's pretty cool, Chris. But now we got to get to know you a little better here as far as your movies go. So we got to ask a couple of hard hitting questions. You ready? Let's do it. Now, if you could add a sequel to a movie that does not have one, what would it be? Okay, if we could freeze time and go back in time, I would love to see a hook two with Robin Williams uh, as Pan, same cast, pick off. They kind of try to do it more modernly, but I'd have to say a hook two with the original cast. Oh, that's a fun choice. I'd watch that for sure. Chad, what about you? Unpopular choice for you, Russell, but I, I think I want a Cabin in the Woods too. Yeah, that seems entirely possible to happen anyway. Like, you might get your wish on that one. Yeah, I can't spoil it. it it'd be a little difficult, but I'm sure they could figure it out. It, it, with horror movies, time travel, science fiction, comic books, there's always, you know, there's unlimited outs. So uh, anything's possible. Time travel is all you need is time travel. Just restart, go back. Yeah. You know, I, I myself got hooked on one. I, I'd, I'd like to do The Rocketeer. Oh, that'd be a good one, too. Yeah. Now, Chris, what's the last movie you saw? Okay, so it was called Come and See. It's a Russian movie about World War II. It's regarded as one of the most historical, accurate uh, World War II movies out there. It wasn't about, you know, five, ten minutes into it. I was already furious at what was going on. It's a whole different level of uh, war movies. 
I imagine it's focused on the Eastern Front. Yeah, it's uh, resistance fighters in uh, the Belarus, like that area. Oh, that's going to be brutal. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, I would rate that, say it's solid nine and a half out of 10 stars just for the, the cinematography's on point, soundtrack on point, everything is on point. Uh, only downside is, you know, it's dubbed, uh, but you, there's English dubs, but it makes it sound kind of, you know, funny and cartoony when you hear them talking. And Chip, what about you? What was the last movie you saw? I finally got around to watching Insidious. I'd never seen it before. Oh, really? It was just one of those movies that I avoided, the trailers, that it seems like it's built around jump scares. Uh, I started out really enjoying it. I was like, oh, I don't know why I've avoided this movie. And then halfway through, I was very disappointed. If you haven't seen it, it just it takes a quick left turn and stops being the same movie and disappointed me. Hmm. Okay. And the last movie I saw was The Last Airbender. Oh, no. Oh, the M. Night Shyamalan? It was. the Yeah, yeah. I had not seen it before, so I saw it. And uh, you know what? It's for kids. I think the negative reviews are a little unfair. I mean, I think there's potential there to do something more epic with it and to do something really cool. So I actually really like the concept, and I wouldn't hesitate to see that uh, material brought to life again in a different way. But... You know, it's for kids. I think I probably would have enjoyed it a lot more if I had gotten it and I was nine years old. That's interesting. I have yet to see the the first one, but I'll have that on my short list. Today's movie is about dinosaurs. So if you were a dinosaur, what dinosaur would you be, Chris? Paracephalosaurus. Because A, the long name is long and it's hard to spell. But it reminds me of a child watching uh, The Land Before Time. And I believe Ducky... The character is a Paracephalosaurus. So yeah, Paracephalosaurus locked in, final answer. Okay. Chad, what kind of dinosaur are you going to be? Do I get to be one of the made-up ones in Jurassic Park? or No, no frog DNA for you. Because oh, their Dilophosaurus is pretty awesome. It is. Uh, I'm going to go with the Utah Raptor, since that's what the Jurassic Park Velociraptor was accidentally based on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna go the with I'm gonna go with one that's not featured in today's movies, but I like the Ankylosaurus. It's a very armored-looking, stout-looking dinosaur with kind of a protective back as well as a clubbed tail. So it's it it's a uh, it's one you wouldn't want to mess with. Yeah, yeah, he's tank. like the the tank. Yeah, the tank. Yeah, it's it seems pretty like I feel like I can just go about my business if I'm one of these. So uh, <laughs> I, I like I like the security. He reminds me of like a horseshoe crab because once he gets flipped over, though, game over. Maybe, yeah, probably so. Don't do that. But uh. <laughs> anyway, uh, as we go into today's movie, today's movie, as we alluded to, is a dinosaur movie. Is what, Chad? 1993's Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park comes out in '93, as Chad mentioned, and it grosses 338.9 million dollars in the box office domestically. That's a ton of money, so it takes the crown for the box office on the air. It comes in ahead of The Fugitive, and the IMDb rating on Jurassic Park is 8.1, and the audiences of Rotten Tomatoes give it 91%, and the critics love it just as much. They give it 91% at Rotten Tomatoes as well. It wins three Oscars for Best Visual Effects, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Sound Editing. It wins two BAFTAs and four Saturn Awards. Chris, had you seen Jurassic Park before? If so, tell us your background with it. 
So yes, I remember, remember it clear as day, 1993. Um, I went with one of my parents' friends. They took me, and I remember seeing it, and my dad told me that if I got scared to pinch my leg, and I remember the scene when uh, you know Nedry gets the Dilophosaurus in, in, the, in the Jeep. My leg hurt really bad after that. And then we went to uh, uh, Chi-Chi's, rest in peace, uh, right there, and I had to go to the bathroom. And I remember sitting on the toilet, just hearing the T-Rex, the feet coming at me and at me, at me, just waiting for them to bust in and, and eat me as a kid. So that's one of the, the highlights of the movie that in that time in my life that I always remember. So it shook you up a little bit, huh? A little bit. As a, you know, little kid, you know, I was like, I think eight at the time. I still have all the McDonald's cups uh, from that time, too, for Jurassic Park. So have you been watching it throughout the years or have you been away from it for a while? Oh, no. It's a, it's a family favorite here in my house. We watch it. My, my kids like it. Uh, my son is obsessed with it. Because, you know, when I was a kid, dinosaurs, that's always like kind of a, a thing that kids always like is dinosaurs. And it's something that I think kids are always interested in, dinosaurs. And to see it come alive like it did on the, you know, the movie screen, uh, it just blew my mind, you know, as a child seeing it. So uh, it's, on, it's on loop here, you know, at least once a month we watch it. Oh, yeah, that's great. And Chad, what about you? What's your background with Jurassic Park? I saw this one pretty early, too. I, I was a kid that was obsessed with dinosaurs. I had, this is going to age me quite a bit, but I had DOS games where you would build your own dinosaur from skeletons and kind of create this museum. So Jurassic Park was a huge, huge hit for me. Uh, it wasn't nearly as scary as The Land Before Time, which traumatized me as a child. I was prepared for this one, thanks to Land Before Time. And I, I went through all the, the toys. I, I remember dino damage being the big selling point for the dinosaurs back in the day for Jurassic Park. Like, you could pull some of their flesh off, which is kind of gruesome if you think about it. But, uh, yeah, big hit. Just out of curiosity, that game you're talking about, was it called Designosaurus 2? Yes, it was. Yes, I had that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was a bootleg copy back in the day. It was a passed around diskette. And all of these words just make me very, very old. <laughs> That's what I like about Jurassic Park is it's like that nostalgia of like our childhood. Yeah, and they it get ex- back all these sub facets of that. They get excited. They're like an interactive CD-ROM. Those are words that sh- just don't exist anymore. It's a Unix system. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's not special. <laughs> <laughs> I myself watched Jurassic Park in the movie theaters when it came out in '93, and I was captivated by it. I ended up reading like the junior novel, which like it's like a kids' book version of the book. And then later, not not that much down the line, a couple of years later, I picked up Michael Crichton's original book, The Jurassic Park, read it, read The Lost World. I, I watched all the sequels, and to some degree, it's funny, I probably watch the sequels more because they don't stick in my memory much, and I always kind of sit there and I kind of go like, I need to give this another chance. And I've, I've given The Lost World and Jurassic Park 3 more roles than I probably have Jurassic Park because Jurassic Park is such an implanted movie on me. Like, it made such an impact. I love it so much. And the reality is those other ones may have started to taint it a little bit for me so i actually haven't really returned to jurassic park in a long time and watching it now really made me rediscover the love that i had of it then it's a great movie and 
I think what you guys just talked about, I was a kid who loved dinosaurs. And, you know, this movie was thrilling. It was well made. You know, it's one of those movies that I just genuinely believe does a good job of hitting people at lots of different age groups. Uh, Steven Spielberg is so good at creating the thrill ride that it has that mass appeal. So it's it has all the thrills of an Indiana Jones movie, plus it has dinosaurs. So I was pleased and I'm still pleased with it. And uh, it's one of those things where, and we'll talk about it, it's the kind of thing that they can't seem to recapture the magic no matter how many times they try and redo that. I think one of the things that sticks out to me more so like even as an adult, go ahead, call me a, you know, a sissy or whatnot. But when they pull those Wranglers up, you know, and you see the Brachiosaurus for the first time, the soundtrack, how it stands up, everyone's reaction to this day, like, you know, my son's next to me watching, you know, my daughter, you know, it's like a tear comes on my eye. It's like, this is like classic cinematography right there. And at the time, you know, that's groundbreaking. The way they shot it with the, the Brachiosaurus being, you know, CGI, it's just still to this day, like a breathtaking moment, I think, in, in all, all of film. Yeah, yeah. I actually feel like the Oscars only gave it the love of the technical feats, but I feel like it kind of got underappreciated for what it was. Some of the critics at the time, you know, kind of were eh, Luke, you know, like, like they were like, yeah, this is a popcorn movie. Yeah. I think it's more than that. This is a part of the show where I want to remind people there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So sit tight. And uh, we will come back after this. And if you haven't seen Jurassic Park, please do and enjoy the rest of this episode. We'll be back after this. Do you love sci-fi, horror, and fantasy films? Then grab a badge for Otherworlds Film Festival, the country's premier sci-fi film festival. There will be Q&As, panels, parties, and mixers. Rub elbows with up-and-coming and established filmmakers, as well as like-minded filmgoers. Come celebrate our seventh year, December 3rd through 6th, at the Galaxy Highland in Austin, Texas. Badges are now for sale at otherworldsfilmfest.com. That's otherworldsfilmfest.com. Well, we're back, and if you haven't seen Jurassic Park, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So, Chad, for those who haven't seen Jurassic Park since 1993, do you want to refresh people's memory? So, we have John Hammond. He's an industrialist who plans to make an island populated by cloned dinosaurs thanks to the discovery of dinosaur DNA in amber. He's sort of like the Scottish Jerry Jones. He's, he's willing <laughs> to have this grand vision of an attraction that brings everyone to his creation but he consistently cheaps out and mismanages the behind the scene picture uh, hammond invites dr ian e. malcolm uh, a mathematician as well as two specialists in dr alan grant and dr ellie sattler for legal purposes the investor's blood-sucking attorney donald Gennaro also accompanies the group malcolm who's played by jeff goldblum can continuously mocks the idea of genetically engineering dinosaurs and, as a subscriber to chaos theory, warns that things will inevitably break down. Lucky for us moviegoers, things do go horribly wrong when an underpaid and overworked computer programmer played by Wayne Knight, Newman, shuts down the fences during a storm in an attempt to steal some of the DNA and sell it to the highest bidder. He meets an untimely end via a Dilophosaurus, and worse for our group, the T-Rex and Velociraptors escape. T-Rex hunts Grant, played by Sam Neill, Malcolm, Gennaro, as well as Hammond's two grandchildren, Tim and Lex. The attorney is devoured by the T-Rex, and Malcolm is injured during the chaos, doomed to an un unbuttoned shirt for the rest of the film. Grant and the two children narrowly escape, 
while Laura Dern's Ellie Sattler is paired up with Robert Muldoon. He's the island's game warden, and they are tracked by a trio of deadly velociraptors. The raptors kill Muldoon, clever girls, and turn their attention to the remaining survivors who have since reunited. Luckily for the survivors, T-Rex suddenly appears in a deadly fight between it and the raptors ensues, allowing Hammond, Grant, Sattler, Malcolm, and the children to escape. Well done. So, we talked about this kind of creating the magic for a generation and their love of dinosaurs. Now, Chris, what is it that kids love so much about dinosaurs, and how does this movie scratch that itch? For me, it was the unknown and then learning about, you know, one dinosaur. And then, you know, everyone knows T-Rex. So you start with T-Rex, then Brontosaurus, which I guess is Brachiosaurus, then Triceratops, Stegosaurus. It just branches out. Uh, And then seeing it in the movie and seeing all these, you know, ones that you had a toy of in your hand, now you're seeing on the screen. Going back to that opening shot of the, the lagoon, if you will, with uh, Parasophosaurus, the Brachiosaurus slash Brontosaurus, whichever, uh, just migrating. That was the magic, I think, that keeps the dinosaurs in the kids' minds and, and then seeing it now. Yeah, I think it's just, a like you said, it's a mystery. You know, these animals aren't here. I mean, kids are captivated when you go to the zoo and they love larger creatures like giraffes and elephants and rhinoceroses. So, I mean, there's there's that love for there. But then when you tell them, these things used to be around, but they're not anymore. It's it's this, man, what were they like kind of thing. And it's imagination, it's mystery, and it's all coming together. And no wonder it's such an amazing time because the world really did belong to them and you want to see them so bad. To have the idea of them coming on the big screen to see them seems rather appealing. And it's just one of those things where it had never been done like this before, I think. There was something that I, I saw when my little brother was in the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. There's a T-Rex museum out there. Um, I guess T-Rex had something to do in Colorado. But the coolest thing to date in this museum, they had uh, a fossil of the skin of T-Rex that was preserved. And you can still feel it. They let you feel it. And that is probably the coolest thing that I've ever felt in my life, knowing that at one time you know, replace that with the fossil and all that. That was a living T-Rex. That's pretty cool. I mean, Russell, I, I think you nailed it for me as far as the zoo aspect. We we like seeing these mammoth creatures, uh, elephants, giraffes, and then you add the element of danger with the T-Rex. And I, I think of tigers. We're just captivated by these dangerous animals that we could see. And the first shots, Chris, you're you're right. It's just, I forget that I'm watching a movie. It's just mesmerizing seeing these majestic creatures, these these giants that were around, and you want so badly for this to exist. Even though I I think I tend to side with Malcolm of we shouldn't do this. Like we we have some of the DNA, but we probably shouldn't do this. Yeah, I think, imagine if you saw it now, if there was a zoo that had dinosaurs, imagine us as adults growing up with dinosaurs, but then seeing it, like, I think that would collectively blow all minds. But again, going back to Ian, chaos theory, it can't end good. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I, I'm, I sign me up. I don't, I don't care how many times I've seen this go wrong, and uh, six movies now that we've seen it go wrong, <laughs> I, I'm still buying a ticket. Sometimes doing what you shouldn't do feels really good. <laughs> if that's my fate, I'll take it. Oh man, I volunteer you as tribute. Then have fun. I'll live stream it. Yeah, I, I would totally go to Jurassic Park. Let's do this. Yeah, uh, um, but I think, I think Chris is right though. I mean. It was powerful to come back to it as an adult. I hadn't been back to it in a long time. And I, I was impressed at how much the magic really was there. And um, it kind of reminds me that I was asking myself, why can they never recapture the magic? And Spielberg was talking about it. He said he didn't want it to be a monster movie. He said that he wanted it to be about how science could bring, to Chad's point, majestic animals back to life again for us. And that is something that none of the other movies that have come from this point on have effectively captured. There's not that sense of awe. When you pull up and you see those brachiosauruses, that the magic, that dinosaurs are alive again, and it looks really good. The other movies, I think, feel like they need to deliver action, 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 action sequence. And this movie is so much more than action. It's about the characters. It's about the people, and it's about how the people are taken aback by it. Yeah, one of the things, I don't know if you saw it, the original stop-motion test footage for the dinosaurs, now looking at it, it looks, you know, really hokey. I guess the movie was, uh, was it David and the Argonauts with the skeletons? That kind of stuff. Where it's, Jason and the Argonauts, yeah. Yeah, yep. where it's real, like, you know, choppy. And they had the stop-motion of the T-Rex going on one of the cars. They had the, the different movements. And then when they tried the CGI, I mean... Looking at it now, even with the hot, like the HD copy of it, you know, it, it looks you can tell it's CGI now compared to let's say Fallen Kingdom, where it looks really good. But still, to this day, like I think that gap in like the bridge in technology right there, uh, from the stop motion that they were planning on doing to CGI, which they you know they went with, I think that is what like really sucked me in as a kid because I think stop motion, my brain would have been like. Yeah, that's kind of fake, you know, but the CGI is what knocked it out of the park. To me, it's it goes back to my issue with the Star Wars prequels versus the originals. They used real puppets in this movie for a lot of it, for the T-Rex and for the Triceratops. And I particularly go to the, the Triceratops scene, this animatronic that's breathing. And you see the actors just express this joy and wonder around it and i don't think they do that with a cgi you you see actors like ian mckellen who's crying because he's acting to like tennis balls and with a green screen whereas these people had what they're visualizing right in front of them and it's breathing and it's reacting and it's just this visceral reaction for me i i can't stop smiling at two paleontologists reacting to we just saw a real-life Triceratops. Yeah, and to, to piggyback off of that, the scene where the T-Rex is attacking the Explorer and you know, the kids are in there. With that rain, I don't know if you knew this, but like that T-Rex was kind of crazy. And yeah. It was short-circuiting. But the scream that you hear when it smashes the roof down and breaks the, the skylight, it wasn't supposed to do it that hard. And the kids screamed out of sheer terror because they didn't know that. <laughs> So that's like, that scream is legit 100% like, we're going to die. Yeah, it turns out as a, a wet T-Rex is really, really heavy. Yeah. <laughs> and so 
the impact of this movie was just a staggering. I don't know about you guys. How many Jurassic Park toys did you have? Every single one. That was like Christmas that year. I had the compound, all the figures. In fact, I still have, I'd say, 40 to 50% that I've, you know, my son, who's two now, he plays with because I'm a collector. But at the same time, like, you know, I played with them. And that's the point is to be played with and for the imagination. So now he, he has, you know, a Velociraptor stuffed animal from 93 that he sleeps with that I slept with, you know. But, yeah, I had the toys. I had those, like, crazy 90s color T-shirts, you know. Yeah. Like the bright greens and, like, pinks and, like, yellow. I had the lunchbox. Did you guys ever have the lunchbox? It was, like, red, and it had the, the T-Rex Explorer seat on it. And the the Thermos mug on the inside had, like, danger radiation or something. I was still rocking the Dick Tracy lunchbox, but uh, no. But I, I, I did like I mean, that seems like a piece of paraphernalia I could have had. It's yeah. a good one because they ended up changing it because of the, the, the thermos, like, saying radiation and danger. Like, I guess people didn't like that, so they had to change it. Got the logo on it. But I think I have that somewhere here still to this day. I mean, uh, and you had Weird Al's uh, claymation music video for Jurassic Park as well. You know you've really made it in the pop culture zeitgeist when Weird Al either makes your song into a parody or he uses you as a subject in your song. So uh, that's, 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 that's the level of culture this reached to. It's legacy right there. Yes. Weird Al is the, bar- the barometer of how important to pop culture you really are. Star Wars, you're, big deal. You're in. You know, you're good. You're paraphrasing Kurt Cobain there, aren't you? <laughs> I think he's, he's the one that said that's how they knew they made it. But didn't like Star Wars get the prequel? Oh, yeah, the, too. the saga begins. Yeah, that might be Chad's favorite part of those. <laughs> that was great. But you experience the thrills, but you also have like these wonderful set of characters in it, too. Let's talk about the people in it, because people are a big part of why this movie is so lovable. We like the characters so much. So, Chris, talk about Dr. Grant, Ellie and Dr. Hammond. Like, tell us about like why you want to put your arms around this movie and what keeps you coming back. Sam Neill, well, it was the first time I ever saw Sam Neill, you know, as a child. And now I'm plagued by when I see uh, other films that he's done, I can only see him as Grant, unfortunately. Same thing for Laura Dern and uh, Jeff Goldblum. But Richard Attenborough, uh, you know, being Hammond, I think the only other movie I saw with him was Gandhi. I know he's done a bunch more, but I do recall that uh, Spielberg talked about a retirement to come do Jurassic Park. And I can't think really of between Grant, Ellie, Malcolm, and Hammond, I can't really think of any at that time actors that could have replaced them. I know there's a couple out there that, you know, auditioned for the roles but didn't get it. And I was pleasantly surprised with B.D. Wong as Dr. Wu, you know, young Dr. Wu, and how they were able to bring him to the newer movies. And Bob Peck, he was the one character that was my favorite. I loved Muldoon. I loved Muldoon too. I loved everything about Muldoon, just like his Spas Twelve, you know, and the 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 opening scene with Shoot Her. That's what sucked me in. So I think, without a doubt, I can say Bob Peck playing uh, Robert Muldoon is what sucked me into Jurassic Park. I I loved him too. I, I if there was a spinoff we need, I kind of want to know the the Muldoon story before he goes here because you just know he's been on a ton of safaris and. Had some adventures in the jungles. He's seen some stuff. He has. Yeah. You can't like, wear a hat to... like that and have not seen some stuff. Oh, <laughs> totally. And like, 
what Chad mentioned earlier, like with Wayne Knight as Nedry. So my day job, I'm a cybersecurity manager. And it's always the joke, like, when something's going great, why do we pay you this much? And then when it breaks, it's, why do we pay you this much? And for him, it's like, when him and Hammond are going back and forth about pay, that's what just makes me laugh all the time, just being in the IT world. It's always a constant, like, in 2020, that's still a debate that always happens when things don't work right. And so here he is debugging, you know, quote, his code, just for it to go awry and him do his whole engine you know, try to get off the island with the, the embryos. I think Wayne Knight was the, the best cast for Nedry, just his personality. The only thing that bugs me with his scenes is when he slips and you hear that comical, like, whoop noise. The slide whistle. Yeah, that kills me. Like, I just, I laugh every time I hear that. <laughs> I think we know not to put slide whistles in movies. I know uh, the man with the golden gun has this amazing barrel roll scene with a car jumping over a river, like doing, uh, you know, 360 degree rotation. And it's amazing. And they pull a slide whistle during it. So this is uh, not as distracting as that, at least. Yeah, there's there's a nice fan edit where instead it's hitting the Bond theme song and it's so much better. But I, I, I'm with Chris. I, I walk away from Jurassic Park now as an adult in the more technical IT world and say, this isn't so much don't play God, it's don't neglect your IT staff, man. That's the cautionary tale. <laughs> 100%. And the, the thing that I learned after the fact... All those computers you see, all the servers, those are actual like state of the art of 93 time actual stuff. And the the file browser they used for the the system, you know, turn the powers and phones back on, that was actual GUI that they had that time as well. Uh, They built out. So that always impresses me when I get back and watch it. Yeah, but this was top to bottom. It was a great cast. I know later on we're going to talk about a recast, and that becomes a little difficult. That is hard. But, but man, they they nailed everyone. I mean, Laura Dern did such a great job. Chris was talking about eh, who would you get? Maybe Helen Hunt. This was around her Twister era, but I feel like Laura Dern added some sternness to it. Of she she added some strength, and Wayne Knight is just the perfect antagonist for anything just stick him in there and eh, he's got that cocky slimy arrogance and whenever you can slip samuel L. jackson into a blockbuster you should do it yeah i just wish that uh just an outtake i would like to see hammond like glare at him and go nedry <laughs> <laughs> i i kind of want to see an outtake of samuel L. jackson dying in him uh him uttering his famous catchphrase, even if it doesn't get to be the full catchphrase as the Velociraptor is getting him. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about this. This is also a science fiction movie because it's kind of funny. Like I, you don't often think about it as such, but for Michael Crichton, the writer of the book, as he was talking about it, you know, at the core of this is that classic should man tamper with the natural order i wanted to ask you what did you how do you guys like that from this point i mean you have the what ian kind of asked you know should you do what you're doing i see them very much as like a yin and a yang with ian he seems to be like the voice of reason compared to uh, hammond and engine it goes back i think to the scene like talking about the the the, the what was it the the, the fleas and the flea circus I don't know. It's a tough one. 
you're right there. I mean, the Hammond's wearing white and Malcolm's wearing black, so they they literally are the yin and the yang throughout the movie. The notes I saw was Spielberg actually associated with John Hammond, which kind of makes sense. He's a creator. He likes to conjure things, whereas Michael Crichton said he's he's Malcolm. And I, I come down on the side of Malcolm. There are orders of nature and there are orders of God that uh, man should not mess with. And resurrecting long extinct dangerous animals. You know, maybe we could re- resurrect the dodo bird and it won't uh, have a great impact on the ecosystem. But resurrecting T Rexes and velociraptors and things like that, there's a certain degree, you know, you get. You get down to eugenics. Uh, we've covered Gattaca. Should you mess with the human genome? Well, look at the society that that created. So, by the way, check out Gattaca. But <laughs> no, that's a that's a great comparison. Like that's a theme that we had had earlier this year. Michael Crichton had said, "Technology. Everybody thinks it's a wonderful thing, and isn't it a wonderful thing that we all everybody has a computer now?" And he goes, "I say yes, and I say no." You know, he has hesitation with that. And so you're right. The voice of the book is far more pessimistic than and darker than the movie. And I think, to your point, Chad, I think why that is is because Stephen honestly identified with Hammond. Yeah. <laughs> I think, piggybacking off of Chad, if we actually do anything and you're playing God, I think more recently, to me, it's playing God, where they have, like, the new mosquitoes that are, like, scientifically engineered so they can't breed that you know they're super sexy for the the females and it kills the reproduction of these mosquitoes it's like what eats that mosquito that's now going to have to have a harder time finding food like what change is that going to like divide in the ecosystem as a whole yeah butterfly effect yeah not that i'm recommending ashton kutcher's (laughs) (laughs) similarly i mean like if somebody comes you know with an invasive species of plant or animal and the next thing you know it overruns an an environment like you know and we're not very good at controlling these things that's why some rivers and food chains have been totally decimated by like asian carp and you know like next thing you know there's like fish that are literally jumping out of the water everywhere because they're overpopulated i love those stories in the news though because it's always escalating it's like there's some species that we want to get rid of. So we've introduced wolves. Oh, no, wolves are now the alpha in this environment and they have taken over. And now we have a wolf problem instead of a deer problem. Or Burmese pythons in the Everglades. You know, they're overrunning <laughs> the Everglades now. So, But another good point, though, you said Malcolm is kind of at odds with Hammond. I think Grant's kind of another piece, a guy who's like finds himself caught in the middle. Like he's a, he represents the past. He's digging up the past dinosaurs. He's digging up the fossils. He hates computers. He but he's a hands on guy like he's in the dirt. And he kind of serves as a foil to Hammond as well, who to Egan's point, like you've taken the science from other people and you just stood on it with no accomplishment or respect for it. And you were so busy, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Grant represents the other side of things of that, the scholar's approach to that. So it it was interesting to see Grant multiple times thinking, oh, maybe we're going to be extinct or as paleontologists my career is toast now. Like I have no, they have no need for me anymore. Like there's a scene where he drops the raptor claw out of the tree when uh, the kids ask him, so what are you going to do now? And he's like, I don't know. And um, it's sad for him. Yeah. I think one of my favorite grant moments, I don't know if you 
like this is after seeing the movie a couple times, but in the helicopter as they're dropping, and he's trying to you know button his well buckle up his his seatbelt. He has two female ends, kind of foreshadowing the rest of the movie of how you know all dinosaurs are female. But just seeing that how he has both female ends, trying to struggle you know to get buckled up, uh, I thought that was really cool foreshadowing. I got to ask at this point, did either one of you guys happen to read the book? I did, yeah. Because there's there's a number of book to movie differences. It's very faithful in some ways, but obviously there's a lot of differences as well. Are there any things you want to touch on in terms of how this movie maybe went away from the book? The one that sticks out to me, which I'm glad the movie didn't do, just because I love Hammond, is in the books, uh, you know, Hammond dies. Yep. And the lawyer lives. He's not as big of a jerk in the book, the lawyer, uh, at that point, though. Like, he doesn't just, like... Like, he goes back looking for people. Uh, he's not... Um, he's caught up in the middle of it. He's not uh, He's not this... Uh, we don't like this guy. Is the brush they paint him with in the movie, and he's far more simple than that. So, yeah. you, to your point, you don't hate that he lived, because he's, he's a... The characters are not so black and white in in the book. You know, nobody's yeah. all good, nobody's all bad kind of thing. Malcolm's a lot more cowardly in the book. You don't like him nearly as much. And Tim and Lex are, are swapped as far as ages and roles. Tim's the... I hate saying hacker because nothing she did was hacking in this movie. It was like NCIS hacking where they're both banging on keyboards. But, uh, yeah. Enhance, enhance, enhance. Yeah. <laughs> That's not how it works. You can't get a license plate from space. The one part of the book that I liked a lot, you know, randomly throughout the book, it was like the fractals with the chaos theory from Malcolm. And that was one of the parts that I always enjoyed when I was reading the book to get to one of those where it dives a little bit deeper into the chaos theory. I thought one that this movie never kind of came to total fruition with and the other sequels didn't really pay dividends off of it either. Ellie and Alan are not a couple in the book. And Alan doesn't even hate kids. In the book, and it's one of those things where they kind of lead that down the road of like Alan has to evolve to learn to deal with kids, otherwise he will lose this woman that he likes, Ellie. They they don't go dive too deep into that well, and perhaps it's because that that wasn't in the book. That was an interesting thing. Yeah, but uh, I think to your point, I think the people like Hammond and they like this version of him a lot more. And when he dies in the book, it's somewhat justified. It's a dark irony of this thing that I've created. I thought I could control it and I and it ended up overtaking me. So that theme is here in this movie, but it's far less vicious. And there's a lot of violence, obviously, that's taken out. And there's some other action scenes and stuff that are taken out of the book as well. And so I against Spielberg has such a good ability to make this for everybody. And all of the changes I go back and I look at it, I sit there and go, the book's really good. But this isn't an R-rated movie, and it sure is thrilling. And once you're seven or eight years old, you can start to really enjoy this movie, and everybody from that age up is going to love it. Right. It just with the with the violence of the dinosaurs. I mean, it's not over. You know, like in the what is it like? You know, Lost World. You know, you see the two T Rexes rip the guy apart. You know, uh, but in Jurassic Park, I think the most you see is the T Rex taking Martin Farrow off the toilet. You know, that's the one big death scene. And then uh, Nedry's death. But as far as seeing it fully play out, that's the only time off my head I can really see it. Because Muldoon, you see her jump on him, but not like super crazy. There's a little bit, but not much. But the full death is, you know, the lawyer. I think PG-13 was 
was the right decision for this movie. Otherwise, a lot of us as kids wouldn't have gotten to it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The only other thing that I thought would have been really cool to have had, and we kind of got it later, there's a lot of the cool parts of this book that we get later through the next two movies. In the book, Grant and Tim and Lex have to go through a uh, airborne dinosaur cage-like an atmosphere which is pretty dangerous and unfortunately we do it with characters we don't like as much later with jurassic park 3 but i also don't know that the technology which they were really pioneering on this i don't know that they were capable of doing that so i think they wisely worked around it but when you read that part in the book you sit there and say man these uh these predatory airborne dinosaurs that's an intense scene and that would be that would be pretty cool to see in this movie oh yeah at some point you run out of budget and man hours and everything else like you said they're pioneering and making up a lot of it on the spot and just coming down to the final day hoping it works yeah i like though on the on the maps for the park you do see you know the atm is there and they have it all built out but i'm glad they. i agree i'm glad they didn't show it i'm glad it's there on the island but not shown now we were talking a little bit about uh, the characters here steven spielberg delayed the filming several weeks to get the cast that he wanted uh, Attenborough was finishing another movie, uh, Chaplin, in uh, 92, and uh, he also had to wait for Sam Neill. And so there were some moving of the time and the schedule to get the right cast involved, and I'm glad he did, because it really is uh, a hard-to-recast movie. I don't think I've seen this many possibilities, to your point, Chris. I mean, every movie that Chad and I do, the internet always tells us, undisputably, all these factual people that might have gotten the role or went out for the role— Matt Damon. Yeah, I've never seen a movie with so many possible recastings as this one. Um, I almost hesitate to even go into this, but uh, for Grant, Harrison Ford was in theory offered the role, but he didn't feel like it was right for him. And after the movie came out, he said he was right to turn it down. Other names include Kurt Russell, Richard Dreyfuss, William Hurt. I just, I can't see anybody other than Sam Neill doing it. This is, this is, this is Sam Neill's perfect role. It's way too close to indie. When he's uh, out digging, doing the actual paleontology work, I would not have liked Ford just almost typecasting himself in that. I don't think Ford has the warmth with the kids and the like. I could see him not liking kids, but I don't. I don't see him having the warmth that Samuel has here. I think what they should do is every character played by Ian Goldblum, even even Mr. DNA, do them all. <laughs> <laughs> just have that laugh all the time. <laughs> yes. Uh, Chris sent me 10 hours straight of Jeff Goldblum laughing in a loop like that. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't watch all 10 hours. <laughs> it's the nighttime, nighttime music for you. There you go. And I might have to cut myself off on this one. But in terms of Ellie, there are a lot of names. The Internet, which is never wrong links to having gone out for this role, including Sandra Bullock, Gwyneth Paltrow, Julianne Moore, Helen Hunt, Terry Hatcher, Elizabeth Hurley, Robin Wright, Nicole Kidman, Heather Graham, Renee Zellweger, Jodie Foster, Sigourney Weaver, Michelle Pfeiffer, Ali Sheedy, Gina Davis, Daryl Hannah, Jennifer Grey. I'm just going to cut it off here. I mean, like, it, it, the list goes on and on and on. Why is Laura Dern right for this role and all of these other very impressive list of people not my tie would be Helen Hunt or Jodie Foster uh, to play uh, Ellie. Again, I think Laura Dern is the right choice, but Jodie Foster just 
the way she like all of her stuff is super serious, but then there's also like a sweet side to her at the same time. Uh, I think that would be a pretty good, or you know, Helen Hunt. Both of those I would tie as a replacement. You know, it's funny you say you both have mentioned Helen Hunt. As a kid, I myself have gotten confused, and somehow like Laura Dern being in Jurassic Park and Helen Hunt being in Twister and kind of happening at the same time, I somehow melded them into one person. So um, <laughs> I did that too. Yeah, that too. it wasn't even until no. I got older where I had an argument with somebody. It's like, yeah, it's the same person from Jurassic Park. And I'm like, no, it's not. And I'm like, um, it's not. And then I looked down and I was wrong. I did that too for Twister. I thought it was the same person. Poor Lara Dern, man. <laughs> I I had the playing cards with Lara Dern's face on it. So yeah, I I remember her and I. Well, Laura Dern got the Oscar later, so she's she's the one laughing now. So yeah, even with. The newer Star Wars, I'm going to keep going back to Star Wars, but as Holdo, she she has a bit of a commanding presence that I think Helen Hunt doesn't. Right. Helen Hunt has the warmth, but I, I think Laura Dern has the sternness needed for this role, and honestly, revisiting it, it's got a lot of feminist tones to it that I didn't pick up as a kid, where she's basically presented as an equal with all the men, and when they attempt to talk down to her, she puts them in their place very, very quickly. She's capable, and I, I think Laura Dern does an excellent job at conveying, hey, I know my stuff too. I belong here. Yeah. Now, I think it's uh, it's a cool character at that point in time that I think I've talked to a number of women who particularly loved this character, and the character meant a lot to them, so 100%. And also, Lex being into computers is another empowering thing for women. They changed that from the book, and uh, Ariana Richards uh, has said there's a lot of people who, to this day, come up to her and say that they were inspired by her, went into computers and science-related fields. So uh, the the movie did do a good job of saying that dinosaurs are not just for boys. Yeah, that's awesome. That's cool. I don't ag- I don't agree with the oh, it's a Unix system. This makes me special. Like no, that's yeah, no duh. <laughs> but but I'm glad it worked. I, I'm glad. Future women grew up to know that that's complete nonsense. <laughs> so let's talk about the magic that Steven Spielberg brings to Jurassic Park. He's such a big piece of why this works. We keep talking about how there's the book version and then there's this movie version. And Steven Spielberg is probably very much at the, the core of what made this so universal. Steven Spielberg's got an amazing career. We've covered him a number of times in the show. But Chris, tell us what your opinion is of, of Steven Spielberg as a director, and then in turn, why you like him here. So as a director, you know, as a kid, I also watched the Indiana Jones. And all the Indiana Jones, it's just, it sucked me in. And he just has a way of all of his shots, all of everything he puts in the films, it just sucks you in. Um, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Jaws. I don't know about you guys, but after watching Jaws, I stared clear of like you know the shallow end of the pool because Jaws might get me, or the you know the ocean. He just has a way of uh, shooting and telling the stories where it's just so believable, uh, more so than as a kid. Uh, but now. Uh, I saw him as, uh, what was it, uh, the BFG. You know, that was a story I read as a child, and I read it to my kids now as an adult. And watching the BFG come to life with, you know, the CGI. Uh, the Adventures of Tintin was another one uh, by Herge. I love those those graphic novels. 
uh, and would collect them. And once again, here he goes bringing this like one dimensional book to life. He just seems to be able to do that. Anything he touches that is a book or a graphic novel, he is able to hit out of the park and bring it to life. I'm a fan of Doom. I could never get past the the title BFG because that means an entirely different thing. Very powerful weapon. Yes, a a big freaking gun, and that is not the middle word. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, he's coming off of Hook, which I think to this day... If you run into uh, Brian Fry, he'll he'll be doing the Rufio and all of us. So the, uh, what a great reimagining of a classic tale. And, and you're right, Jaws. Just the, the wonder and variety of the creations. But he's doing Schindler's List simultaneously. So he's doing this. I, I read that he was having trouble finding joy and it would take him hours just to build up energy to answer basic things on Jurassic Park because he's in this world of Schindler's List and he goes on to win the Oscar for rightfully so but uh the joy and energy he could still manage to bring while doing a movie like that simultaneously to Jurassic Park just speaks to his talent and how great he's been for cinema for as long as he's been in the game Piggybacking off of you, Saving Private Ryan in 98, I remember all the buzz of all the veterans that were having to walk out because it was so lifelike. And uh, the PTSD, the memories were coming back. He was able to reproduce that, you know, to the T. I wouldn't call that, you know, bad publicity by any means, but I think it just shows how uh, of a perfectionist he can be when it comes to recreating these environments yeah he's great at his craft yeah he really is he knows how to move the camera and in ways that keep you absolutely at the edge of your seat and engaged and he does it well too with just dialogue scenes he makes you interested in what the characters are doing he draws you into a scene really well so he knows how to tell a story uh you know he, he converts things well and keeps the pace of his movies going well but he's also a master at the within the scene management and uh, again if you watch the behind the scenes on this one very similar to indiana jones he has such clear vision for what he wants and it's amazing to see him articulate himself and to work with people to get what he was seeing in his mind and one of the things i i find interesting about watching steven working is he's not a jerk about it like People really seem to like working with him. And for somebody telling that many people, no, it's got to be this way and it has to do this and the amount of control and uh, faith that people put into him, he also seems like somebody who's wildly passionate about what he's doing. And that energy rubs off to all the people around him. And he goes out of his way to get the right people and to build them up to make them really good at what they want to do. So uh, he went out and got the Industrial Light Magic group he went out and got stan winston and uh who to create these amazing dinosaur creations and it was he gave them the leash to do this really exciting thing for them and it was it's just really interesting to me how steven can get everybody on their sides even the kids the kids like uh we saw this in the et episode all the kids that worked with steven were really loved him and and he treated them like adults and stuff like he would ask you know a, a young boy like what do you think we should do for this scene and how do you think the character would react in here and it's one of those things where uh, a director doesn't always have that patience for their actor or the people even around them and 
I just have so much respect for him as a leader on a film like this. Yeah, he's not exactly Stanley Kubrick for his actors. No. Uh, the, the special relationship he has with Drew Barrymore in that E.T. episode, and even even with the actor that played Tim, uh, he auditioned for Hook, and Spielberg really liked him and said, I'm going to find work for you, and he kept his promise, and I think that's really cool. I think also if you look at the pictures of him working with you know the actors that played Lex and Tim, a lot of them, he's down on their level. So he's not, you know, menacing over him. That, I think, always inspired me a little bit. Like, this guy is, you know, genuinely cares about what he's doing and cares about his company and his actors and those around him. Yeah, and despite all that gigantic budget, you would think that they would blow the budget, but this movie finished up 12 days ahead of schedule and under budget. Which is amazing. Which means the budget must have been pretty hefty. <laughs> and they had, like, the, the, the tropical storm as it was going on, and they still finished early. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there was a hurricane that hit Hawaii where they were filming, and it was pretty damaging. And you're, to your point, it could have really hosed things up. An interesting story on that is Richard Attenborough didn't join them in the shelter in place in the hotel ballroom, which everybody was. And, like, I mean, people were very afraid. Like, they were worried for their lives. And this was a rough storm. And he's just sleeping regular through it. And Steven Spielberg asked him later, like, how did you sleep through that? And he goes, I lived through the Blitz. <laughs> <laughs> And one of, the, one of the things, like, the the wave shots of the waves crashing, like, that was filmed during all that, too. So they probably got some good, like, you know, B-roll uh, footage for it. Yeah, and we talked about the magic of seeing dinosaurs, but we did touch about how the dinosaurs didn't look good before. But Steven Spielberg also had the guidance to get the right people on the board to figure out how these dinosaurs should move. Not just move, but how they should breathe. And then Spielberg was really smart. I can't believe how good this movie looks CGI-wise compared to movies that come later that should have better technology, but because Steven put rain in front of it or he only showed it for a little bit or he used animatronics cut in and then with CGI, he was he had such discipline to use the tools at his disposal. It looks really good now. That's really impressive. Let's jump to another one of his movies that kind of stick out going by with what he has to work with let's talk about jaws how you know that shark was always you know not working in the water so he substituted it with the music you know to get you going and i think in jurassic park it's kind of the same thing you get small hints here and there to get your blood kind of going a little bit you know i think that's one of his really good strong suits is if it's not working he'll find a way to you know incorporate it to where it works no, you're, you're right about that. I think he, I mean, Hitchcock was the one who said this, but to get the people invested and excited and to keep them thrilled, you need to give them information. And Spielberg does a good job of visually giving you information. He shows that there's a threat and that these characters are afraid. And then they shows them reacting well to it. And if you look at that formula, that sounds really simple, but you would be amazed at how many people don't do it and don't get it right. He plays that card again and again and again and again in this movie and in all of his movies. And his palette of tricks, his bag of tricks works. And it works really well here. Like, to your point, Jaws seeing this threatening image, the thrill ride of an Indiana Jones uh, kind of come through in this one. The magic and the majestic nature and the awe of an E.T. and stuff like that. I mean, all of that's coming together here. And at the core of all of these movies 
are his characters and his people and he makes you care about the people because the dinosaurs aren't actually on the screen all that much he limits the on-time screen for the dinosaurs as well yeah it's to me it's always the use of puppets you get those use of puppets right and it it stands the test of time the the worst parts of this movie the parts that you kind of say something's not quite right if you're really looking at it or is the cgi scenes uh there are portions where you can tell that it's a flat background in a green screen but the velociraptor puppets or the animatronics that they built even with jaws jaws is the animatronic shark those hold up those are still scary and awe-inspiring today absolutely and he did his homework too they got a accomplished paleontologist jack horner was his name to come in and all that information about you know the bird-like relationships that was kind of new in the science field at this point dinosaurs had always been thought of as these slow moving lumbering creatures and to see them move like that was something nobody had seen before and to get the science right to do your homework Crichton did a lot of homework himself in what he wrote so i mean he was using well-founded source material, but then to follow through with that and to drive the people who are doing the visuals and the creation, to your point, they didn't use that stop motion in the end because it wasn't the right tool in the end, and they found, they found, they stumbled across the right tool as they were doing it. Are you saying they spared no expense? They spared no expense. <laughs> I love that being repeated throughout the movie, and you just keep seeing things where they cheap out on even down to the buttons like who makes the on button red there's just so many odd little things that spielberg puts through there it's like this makes no sense that an on button would be red or you see just cheapness throughout the entire island <laughs> as hammond saying we spared no expense not paying our people <laughs> automating things doing everything like that taking the cheap routes going back to russell with the um with the stop motion CGI and that one of the things, one of the, the hidden secrets, I guess that is in the script that's in the movie is where they use, you know, Phil Tippett for CGI and, and well, Mern used the CGI, but Tippett was a stop motion. And when they did the test and showed like, Hey, look at these CGI dinosaurs. Uh, Tippett was said to have said, uh, I think I'm extinct. And then when they're walking up the staircase, you know, Dr. Grant goes, I think we have a job. You know, going back to what you said about him dropping the, the raptor claw. And then Malcolm says, don't you mean extinct? So I like how they, they pulled that, you know, group meeting into the film. That always stands with me. Yeah, and that scene, they were using the computers to make the Gallimimus run in a herd. And Steven saw that and he said, that's the future of movies. And they made a choice. That was not what they expected to can stop motion claymation kind of like where you make a model and you move it snap move it snap and then it all goes together they chose to embark on this bold new direction and you know phil Tippett was in charge of all that stop motion stuff and he was lamenting it but don't feel too bad for him he was brought in to oversee the movements of that computer thing so it's kind of an interesting transitional point where somebody who's the master at doing it this older craft this way is also then hopping into and overseeing, pioneering the new way of doing it. Something that just I just thought of, and it's one of our older topics we were talking about with the, the recasting, if we could, 
What do you think about Sean Connery being Hammond? Yeah, that was another one of those alternative castings I didn't get into, but uh, I think he'd be awesome at it. I think he turned it down, but um, I, I, I like Attenborough so much, so it's it's uh, hard to see anybody else in the role once he's done it, but uh, I liked the idea of Connery doing it. I think he would have been good. I think you might have gotten the darker John Hammond. Yeah, Attenborough <laughs> is more like grandfather. You know, I see him as a grandfather. Colonel Sanders. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, there definitely is a, a 50% Colonel Sanders in there for sure. Yeah, that character in the book is is a lot more strong-willed and, you know, unflinching and always moving forward and has his vision and he drives through. And in some ways, I really admire that in him. But, you know, he, he becomes blinded to those things around him. So, Oh, I did want to mention uh, the original ending that they had set up to do was to they were climbing on the skeletons of in the museum portion of the park much like the end here, but they were going to drop the skeletons onto the raptors below, crushing and impaling them. And then Hammond was supposed to come in with a gun and then shoot their last one, and then they all get away safe, which is not nearly as cool as what they decided to do, which was to take the T-Rex, come in and then eat the raptors, and the raptors are distracted, and that's enough time for them to get out. So kind of the T-Rex ends up saving the day. So... I, another one of those changes that Spielberg made during the process of it was a great decision. Yeah, he was right to call T-Rex the star of the show. 100%. Yes, yeah. I'm actually surprised none of us picked the Tyrannosaurus Rex and what dinosaur would you be? That just seems like that's, ever, that's, that's most people's favorite. I was trying to go for like least popular like... The deep cuts, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the deep, deep edition. Chris, you're the hipster of dinosaurs. Yep, get my cold brew call today. <laughs> what do you think about the location where they chose to shoot this, Chris? I think Hawaii was a good fit. It fits that tropical vibe because, you know, they say it's off of the coast of Costa Rica, you know, even though they met in San Juan and there's ocean behind them, but we'll ignore that since it is, you know, landlocked. Uh, but I, I think it fits it. And then with the, the tropical environment, it gives you that dinosaur like you saw in the books, you know, the tropical plants and all that. So I really think Hawaii was the correct choice. Maybe could have done something, I don't know, Brazil or even shooting Costa Rica itself. But I think for the mountainscapes, they really they really nailed it in uh, Hawaii. Uh, the plan was to go to Costa Rica first, but Spielberg wanted to go somewhere with better established infrastructure. Yeah, Costa Rica has no military, so makes sense. He had shot in Hawaii before during his Indiana Jones runs there, so it was returning to something that he knew worked. Yeah, makes sense. Of course, there was a big storm. It's pro probably a little like Adam Sandler, too. If you have the chance to go shoot in Hawaii for your movie, go do that. Yeah. Honestly, the waterfalls, the topography, the coastline, the jungles, it's breathtaking, and... Again, to the authenticity, I mean, I think this is just as impressive as anything that you'll see in Avatar, which is you can't create something that amazing and breathtaking as the nature's design. And so that's, a, that's another one of those things that just adds to the awe of this movie. When that helicopter comes down, down for a landing next to the uh, waterfall there, it's just uh, it's amazing. And as you enter the gate with all that lush greenery around, it's you as an adult even are sitting there feeling like an eight-year-old kid in your seat going like, oh boy, we're going into the park. 
<laughs> Mark my words, before I die, I will visit that waterfall. Well, just even the, the giant majestic gates, like, I, I don't know what it is about large gates opening. Maybe it makes me think of castles or something like that from my childhood, but that's just pleasing. They could have been smaller vehicle-sized gates, but you just have this giant Jurassic Park slow-opening Lord of the Rings-style gate. And, and then just... the quote, it was like, what do they have in there, King Kong? Yeah. You know, it's like... <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, well, they spared no expense. <laughs> On big gates and not the IT department. That's an interesting thing, uh, not to dive back into the difference in the book, but Nedry in the book does not is not an employee of Hammond. He's a uh, contractor of his own like security system, and Hammond does stiff him, and then not only does that, but smears him and runs him down, and and ha- and Nedry loses a lot more business. So Nedry's, I guess you could say, has more just cause in the book to be angry at Hammond. So uh, yeah. again. Everything in this movie does makes Hammond a hundred times more likable than he is in the book. Are there any other special effects things that you wanted to include? Because this, this is a deep well, Chris. Okay, so when it comes to special effects, like you were talking about with the location, I'm going to put them side by side because a lot of the times in movies, they'll use like mats to paint the backgrounds or they'll do CGI, you know, floor or fauna. I think with where its location is, it just fit in. With the, uh, the the dinosaurs, it was a simple scene, but the whole shoot her scene when they're you know tasing her and shooting her and stuff, just the look in her eyes kind of stares you in. And I would call that probably a simple special effect, but that with the lighting that was going on, the flashing, that's one of those parts that stood with me for a long time. I guess the other big special effect that really stands out too is the whole T Rex paddock explore crush scene you know no oh, that's such a good scene and and her walking in front of the the explorer and then when she pulls her head down and the light shines it and her pupil dilates that just looks so real so real yeah. for like you know a reptile chad you mentioned this earlier do you want to elaborate a little bit on you said a wet dinosaur is heavy <laughs> they had a hard an extremely hard time keeping it upright getting the jaws to actually function and I forget how many hundreds of pounds this... 15,000 pound machine. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't fully built, but it was enough to get on screen um, the parts that you needed to see. But yeah, getting the jaws to work and lowering it to the point that it wasn't going to crush the children, which, you know, that's important, unions and all. But uh, the challenges they had in that rainstorm... But even even for me, when you go behind the scenes and you see the people dressed as the raptors in little black suits, with the, it reminds me of the there's a famous shot of the Ninja Turtles movie where all the Ninja Turtles are uh, the newer ones. They're all these guys in these black suits with like shells above them or something like that. There's four of them. It's it's an odd scene, but this movie actually made it work. Yeah. So Stan Winston created all this machinery at the same time in this shop and uh, when they got it there for the Tyrannosaurus Rex scene uh, he looked concerned when he like Spielberg was talking about having rain and water and stuff and he's like you know these machines aren't made to get wet you know that right and like Spielberg's like no I, I, I have to have the rain in the scene I can't cut it because it's an important part of what he wanted to do and it, it, you know it's it is really important that it is raining it makes the scene so much more intense at the end of the day stan winston said 
I guess I'm a gambler. Let's just go for it. And he shrugged and this very, very expensive equipment, they just started uh, getting it really wet. And Spielberg said the machinery would start to become overtaxed because the foam rubber skin would absorb tons of water and it started to shake like it was cold. And it just would shake back and forth like a kind of a seizure kind of shivery kind of shake. And so they would cut. And he said that they would have crew members out there, like teenage boys, like hitting it, whacking this Tyrannosaurus Rex to like knock the water out of it with a bunch of towel shams and stuff like that between between takes, just trying to get it, you know, wrung out enough to the point where they it would run again and then they would run the water while it was running. So it was it was a it was a difficult balancing act to try and get the machinery to hold up. That'd be like a childhood dream of mine, just whack a giant T Rex like a pinata. That'd be amazing. Another fun one was digital face replacement. A lot of the stunt people have their faces cut out and put it on with the actor's faces. So, for instance, when Lex falls out of the ceiling and is hanging there and dangling and the raptors are chomping at her feet, it's an intense scene, uh, but that's a full-grown woman doing that stunt scene. (laughs) And it's really interesting. Basically, it's like Photoshop, but, you know, frame by frame for video. And uh, they... They face map the actor doing the screaming and they put it on there. And that's pretty new for this 90s period of point of time. And it's, it looks pretty good. And again, Spielberg doesn't just jam it down your throat and say, here it is. It's in the moment of all this other stuff going on. And he's really good at using the tools that he had, it, but also knowing how to frame it. Yeah, I didn't even know that. I didn't notice still. Was it? I think the theater release, you actually see the stunt woman, but when they released it, they, they fixed it. There's a lot of little fun facts on this. Uh, the poop that Ellie shoves her hands into didn't smell bad at all. It's not poop. It was it was mud, straw, clay, and they needed flies to get around it somehow, so they, they filled it full of honey, so it actually smelled good. <laughs> and uh, Laura Dern to this day says that she has kids come up to her and be like, are you the lady who stuck her hand in the poop? <laughs> so Oscar winner, but also she'll always be that lady who stuck her hand in poop. <laughs> I was always surprised. Like, well, the Triceratops is only so tall. How is this massive mound of poop coming out of that? I imagine that was more than one go at it. They're really big animals, I guess. I, I don't know. They're going to need a lot of dung <laughs> oh. beetles on that uh, island. That's for sure. Or did you ever notice, like, when um, Nedry gets spit on, that's his hand smacking himself with the, the spit? No, I did not notice that. That's cool. Yeah, rewatch it. It's like he had the, the, the venom poison in his hand, and when it spits, he smacks himself in the face. And that's how it gets on his face. Hmm. The hardest scene was the one where the T-Rex is chasing the Jeep. It took him over two months to do that. I mean, just knowing how to make the dinosaur move was a challenge. There was no frame of reference for an animal that large and to try and think about how to make it look natural, make it look good. That was a big part of it. So uh, that they said that was the hardest scene that they had to do. In the T-Rex paddock scene, Sam Neill actually burned himself while filming with the flare. Took a little, little chunk out. Mm. And that whole scene in, in general, like with the, the T-Rex coming, uh, with the water, I heard that's inspired by uh, someone was listening to Earth, Wind & Fire and the bass was making the water move, and that's when they put the string underneath the the board and pulled on it, and they were able to recreate that uh, ripple effect. Yeah. They said that was the hardest. Another fun sound note was all the dinosaur 
roars were a combination of other animals. So the T-Rex is a lion and an alligator taking different parts of their frequencies, overlapping them together and amplifying it. Uh, the raptors were a combination of dolphins, low frequency, and sorry, dolphins, and the low frequencies of a walrus coming together to create these great shrieking sounds. It's just uh, they did such a good job to create that. Or, you know, the T-Rex footsteps are sound recordings of redwood trees being timbered and falling to the ground. Dilophosaurus was um, howler monkeys, hawks, swans, and I think a rattlesnake. <laughs> You're missing the funniest one, though, when the velociraptors are communicating. That's the same sound as tortoises having sex. That is, yes, yeah, I did read that one, yeah. Sexy. So Someone had that in their memory bank of, you know what would make a good raptor sound? Tortoises having sex, and everyone stared at that guy. Uh, now, one big part of the sound of this is the soundtrack. Chris, do you like the music of Jurassic Park? I do. I had the cassette tape uh, to date us again, back to that time. I wore it out. I still find that the end credits is one of the most relaxing sounds. And the one that really stands out to me is uh, a song on there called A Tree for My Bed. You know, when they're up in the tree, that means a lot. Uh, just Again, memory-wise, all the songs, I just remember the scenes or like when uh, Hammond and Ellie are talking um, in the visitor center about the, the flea circus and they, the song that goes with that's remembering uh, Petticoat Lane. Just all the music, uh, John Williams, you know, hit it out of the park. I would like to hear, you know, his worst music because I can never think of a bad John Williams soundtrack. So I want like the stuff he threw away to see, you know, how good that sounds. Yeah, it's 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 an iconic soundtrack. Chad, what are your thoughts on it? I'm just going to echo the Williams magic. It's majestic. It's perfectly encapsulating what you're seeing when you hear that main theme and as you first get on the island and you see the Brachiosaurus herds and that theme kicks in. It's just it's perfectly capturing what you're seeing of just this is new, this is awe-inspiring and I, I can't say enough about John Williams' work from Jaws to Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park. He just created another icon. It's like the fanfare. You always hear that fanfare when you see like the main dinosaurs or the main characters in like Star Wars, that fanfare, uh, you know, in Jaws, just that, that scary, you know, the dun, 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 dun. Like, he's a genius. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, he had said that he wanted to create pieces that would convey a sense of awe, fascination, and uh, given it dealt with the overwhelming happiness and excitement that would emerge from seeing dinosaurs live. He said he wanted to have a feeling that was almost a religious type of feeling of walking into a powerful cathedral, and uh, he needed to have that deep of an impact for people to kind of give you the chills. And, you know, when working with animals and that are gone the danger and the scary scenes like being in the kitchen he said that gave him the opportunity to push the orchestra to the instrument limits of what they can do and it was a really fun project for him to do for a guy who's just made such an amazing body of music this one is very close to the top for me i i might have et as my favorite piece of music that he's or my favorite soundtrack that he's done but this actually might be even ahead of the Star Wars and Indiana Jones and 
Superman and Jaws. I mean, th- this one might be my number two. Wow, high praise. That's pretty high. I think I think Jurassic Park. The music relates to all the scenes so perfectly. Like Indiana Jones, I can think of the theme song. Uh, Jaws, I can think of you know when you're not seeing the shark but you're hearing the music. Close Encounters, I can relate a lot of that soundtrack to the scenes as well. But for me, Jurassic Park, each scene, each sound part of the soundtrack, I can just picture it in my head. You guys ready to hand out some awards? Love to. Let's do it. All right. Chris, MVP. Tyrannosaurus Rex. That's a great choice. So, yeah, T-Rex is my uh, final answer. Great pick. Yeah. Chad, MVP. Along those lines, I'm going with Industrial Light and Magic. Just what they created is still a marvel today, and this movie makes me feel like a little kid every time I revisit it. Yeah. I grow more and more appreciative of Steven Spielberg, not just the, the body of work that he's done, but how he works with people. And so he's my MVP. Really a great mind and seems like a really solid dude to be around. Uh, it's really fun to see him talk about how enthusiastic he is for all this. So his vision and his leadership is uh, at the helm of this thing. So there's a lot of good people on board. And man, I like all these picks. And there's some good ones that we didn't pick. I mean, I would normally I'd like to give it to Michael Crichton for writing such a good story. Yeah. But uh, who's your best supporting, Chris? A good Dilophosaurus. I'm going to stick with the dinosaurs. I like it. I like this theme that's emerging here. I love the Dilophosaurus as a kid, so I'm, I'm glad you uh, are bringing this one up. I don't think that there's any actual factual information that they spit or had frills on their neck, but I love that they took some wild stabs with it. Yeah, yeah, completely made it up, but that's what I picture when I see that name. If you think about it, if you reanimated animals, we would discover things about them we do not know. So, I mean, there would probably be, it might not be that, but I mean, it might be something else. Maybe they're bright orange. You know, you don't know. I mean, that's the thing. Anytime you see this thing that you didn't know before, you might have some unexpected stuff like that. So good for you. Take, take Take a big swing. Yeah, I think there is a dinosaur that Dilophosaurus was based on. It just couldn't spit and didn't have the frills. But I'm so glad they added the spit and the and the and the, uh, the frills because that, as a kid, like I said, that's my leg hurt when its frills came up. I was like, "Oh, geez, what is going on?" I had a Dilophosaurus that would spit water. Uh, you know, a toy that like you would squeeze its stomach, it would suck water, and then you would spit it out. Yeah, but the frills always came off the neck, and it was super annoying. And I was mad that it wasn't attached. Work on that, toy makers. <laughs> <laughs> now, Chad, who's your best supporting? talked about her already but laura dern i just i can't imagine someone else in this role and we named a lot of heavy hitters that would do a great job but what laura brings to this movie is irreplaceable love it love it great pick mine is gonna be jeff goldblum i just he takes what is actually a pretty small character and it it lives such a larger than life in the book, I mean, to me, this is my favorite Jeff Goldblum performance. I mean, this is probably my favorite Sam Neill, my favorite Laura Dern performances as well. But to me, uh, I I particularly like Jeff Goldblum, and this is just his perfect movie uh, for me. I, I love it. It is perfect laugh too. Yeah. <laughs> Shirtless Jeff Goldblum is best Gold Goldblum. Yeah. Uh, m- m- must go faster. <laughs> What a strange shot to include. Like most of it, it makes sense. There were there were a couple scenes, like the electric fence scene, that was completely unnecessary. Although I'm glad Tim got shocked. That made the me shirt, shirtless Jeff Goldblum 
have you seen the uh, the GIF? I'm going to say GIF because it's graphic interchange format, but the GIF where they took uh, Grant and put him on Goldblum's chest as he's breathing, like the Triceratops. It's the funniest know. thing yeah. ever. Yeah. Uh, my wife found a, an image of the Thriller album with Michael Jackson sitting on the cover with his shirt pulled back uh, and with Goldblum's face superimposed on the Thriller album. <laughs> good yeah uh but no goldblum changed his role too i mean uh you know the whole scene where he gets the flares and also drives the dinosaur away from the kids uh in the book he's cowardly and is running with Gennaro into the bathroom and just gets squashed and stuff but again he's the one who's representing should you do this kind of thing and so you shouldn't dislike him in that manner and so he made a number of changes with the character that are really cool so goldblum pittsburgh's own goldblum there you go yep uh hidden gem chris i have two and for me i always like to look for the bloopers in movies especially after watch them so many times so there's two that stick out in my mind one is in the the t-rex paddock on the left side you can clearly see a potted plant with the potting and everything just kind of chilling over there uh on the side and the other one i tried to mention with the the fence and climbing the fence and shocking it there's a part when they're painting, uh, you can see the fence is ending and they could have just walked around it instead of climbing over it. Uh, so my hidden gems are, uh, are the, the, the bloopers, if you will. Chad, who is your hidden gem or what is your hidden gem? I'm going with B.D. Wong. He, he was actually billed pretty highly and it's a brief cameo, but he reoccurs throughout the series. And just the way he responded to Goldblum with almost a condescension of uh, nothing's gonna go wrong this is perfect they're all females and you're an idiot i i really enjoyed his character i'm glad he gets to come back uh yeah, yeah yes life will find a way <laughs> um uh my hidden gem's gonna be phil tippett uh and stan winston so i i have two as well and those are the uh, phil tippett was in charge of the dinosaurs motions and the cgi world and stan winston was in charge of the animatronics and Similar to what Chad said for the for his MVP, these guys and their crew and all the people who worked with them made the magic happen of why we still love Jurassic Park to this day. You know, Phil Tippett, he was the dinosaur supervisor in the credits. If he would have just paid attention to the dinosaurs and watched them, they never would have escaped. He had one job. <laughs> uh all right. And um, recast, we already mentioned, and I think this is going to be one of the hardest recast episodes we've done, but Chris, it's got to be done. If you had to replace somebody in this movie and put somebody in their place, who would it be? Okay. I'm going to go far out with this one. I love it. But hear me, hear me out. Jeff Goldblum. He's kicking rocks. I would put in a serious kind of dark Robin Williams. I love Robin Williams. I trust him. Like photo, like, you know, like his serious roles, he does so good. And he has enough of that, like quirkiness to be like, you know, I think he could do a really good job explaining chaos theory. Um, I can see him in the Explorer with Ellie and the whole, like explain the water rolling. Like, I think he would have done a really good job as a Malcolm. But it's easy as threatening to steal your girl though. Uh, that chest hair, of course. You know, he's like a his arm hair and his chest hair. He's it's the nineties. He had it in the bag. Chad, who's your recast? I'm going after the kids. Big surprise. Uh, I Joseph knew it. Mazzello. 
I knew it. <laughs> this guy, this guy does not like kids. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I am playing the role of Grant here, but uh, yeah, Tim was the older brother in the books. I think you could actually get Zachary Ty Bryan, who played Brad on Home oh. Improvement, to age up the character. Oh, I don't that... like this. <laughs> What JTT Jonathan Taylor Thomas? Oh was the, no, he was lit back then. Who's they were actually the same age, but Zachary Ty Bryan always looked older. Do you have a Do you have a Lex replacement that I can moan at as well? No, she did a great job. You're okay with Ariana Richards her. then? Yeah, okay. and she doesn't do a lot of acting, but she is in Tremors, so uh, yes. you can check out our Tremors episode, which was one of the very first ones that we did. Not to jump in, but what about what's her name from? Um, like small soldiers, uh, she's in Spider Man. Kirsten Dunst. No, no, I will never recommend. Yeah, I like her, but uh, Chad, Chad is also not only does he hate all children, but he also hates Kirsten Dunst. So, <laughs> if we ever have a spinoff podcast, it's going to be Chad hates things. Oh yes, I, I have a top ten list of uh, screw these kids. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll pre-subscribe to that. Let me know when it comes. Yeah, I was gonna say we uh, we might need to uh, have a spinoff episode. Just just one episode of child actors that Chad particularly hates. Yeah, the worst kids in movies. Absolutely. Yeah, he doesn't even like the Jerry Maguire kid. No. <laughs> Move moving on to uh, Russell, who won't recast children. Yeah, yeah, I will not be recasting children in this one. I'm gonna. I, I'm. This is this is the cop out. You know, this is where I go deep into the cast and I find somebody who didn't necessarily swing it in either direction. So I'm going after Dodson, uh, played by Cameron Thor, and I want somebody more eccentric in that role to be hiring Nedry. I want Steve Buscemi to be telling us how the shaving cream canister oh, would wow. work. I thought you were going to say John Cleese, rat race. I'm eccentric. That would, I mean, yeah. The, in a movie where everybody just nails it and is so memorable, Dotson's not. And he even has Wayne Knight pointing to him. Everybody, everybody, Dotson's here. Everybody. <laughs> See, no one cares. See, no you one cares. The new movie? <laughs> but if you put Steve Buscemi in that role, Maybe we might care. Yeah, he's uh, apparently he's coming back for the new, the the new movie. I like it. Oh. So uh, best shot, Chris. Now this is a tough one. Yeah, I'm gonna just do the cop out. I will not reference the, the lagoon scene. I'm gonna say the helicopter coming down with the falls behind it, and mm. the John Williams score doing its magic. I love it. Chad, best shot. I really like the scene where the raptors have entered the room and there's one specific raptor that stands up on a table and he uh, gets in the middle of a projector that's projecting the DNA sequence. And it's the sequence is displayed on the raptor's face and it's just a really menacing but cool effect. Mm. Yes. I, yes. I thought you were going to go with the raptor like steaming up the kitchen door, but uh, that's another good raptor one there too. I'm going to go with the zoom into Tim's face in the car when he has the night vision goggles. That's the moment where it's about to get real and you are, you are afraid. And uh, that's just another one of those great moments of Spielberg is showing you that uh, a, you should be afraid and then he'll explain why. And then he'll watch the people leading you through it with their fear. But uh, I had a hard time picking that. And with that scene, like, I use a quote from that scene with my kids now when uh, Gennaro is like, is it heavy? It's expensive. Put it up. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, uh, I don't know that would be my favorite shot if it was recast with Zachary Ty Bryan in it, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> what, what about Macaulay Culkin? I do like I do like I do like I do like Macaulay Culkin. So, Chad hates him. He pr- I, oh, he probably I'm fine does. With Macaulay, I like his brother more, but that's a strange more, thing yeah. to say. Okay. <laughs> well, or sorry, uh, best scene, Chris. When Ellie and Hammond are talking uh, in the visitor center after her seeing, you know, what happened outside, her running in, and just him telling his story of his childhood and what he's trying to accomplish. That goes back to you talking about Spielberg, how he's really good at framing the dialogue scenes. And I think that one is just perfect, how the camera swoops and slowly frames them up. The ice cream scene. Yep. I like that. She made you want some ice cream in that, I bet. <laughs> it's still there. It's been out you know, for all day, but it's still frozen. Weird. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, now, Chad, best scene. I don't think the awe of the T-Rex's escape and just the carnage that ensues can be outdone for me. That's the scene for me of, oh, crap. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, crushing cars and... Each one of those uh, cables breaking go flying by. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. And that that was my runner-up, but the only one that to me that tops that is the Raptors in the kitchen with Lex and Tim. I just... That is so intense. Watching these raptors talk to each other, move around their motions. I don't know. I, w- I was familiar with a lot of dinosaur types, but I hadn't really fallen in love with the Velociraptor until this movie. And man, they seeing them here in this scene just showed you how formidable they might have been. See, I was too busy being mad at Tim. Because once again, someone has to risk their life to save his immobile backside. He just gets paralyzed by fear. That's his one defining trait. He's a kid. Okay. Lex was a kid. She was useful. In the theaters, I remember like when the raptor's foot landed and it shows that shot of it like tapping its its nail, the the big you know talon. I remember the audience laughing during that to like kind of break the ice and suspension a little bit. That's one memory I have. And then yeah, I remember like you know, let's save Tim. (laughs) <laughs> it's like can dinosaurs open doors no I, probably not <laughs> opening door click <laughs> <laughs> no that's, I, I love that scene so much so intense now best quote chris best quote so if the pirates of the caribbean break down the pirates don't eat the tourists <laughs> i love that one that's that's quality gold bloom in action there i love that yeah chad what about you best quote life uh, finds a way. I, 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 I oddly enough didn't go Goldblum. I had him in my superlatives, but I'm, I'm going to go with Sam Jackson and, and uh, hold on to your butts. <laughs> the co-script writer, David Kep was working on Death Becomes Her, and he heard Robert Zemeckis say, hold on to your butts, and he wrote it down in a little notebook. as like, that's a funny line. I want to use that again someday. And one year later, he put it into Jurassic Park. So <laughs> That's awesome. I did not know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's funny how low build Sam Jackson is in this movie. He's not a household name yet, but it just goes to show you how awesome this cast is. We didn't even mention it. We didn't even mention it. Oh, yeah. Like, as a kid, all I thought of him was it's the guy that chain smokes. Because, you know, the 90s, smoking's bad. Well, that guy doesn't smoke. Like, what's he doing? I do have a runner-up for best quote. I, I often do say, you clever girl. Yes. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, this is a very quotable movie. I use, uh, you were so preoccupied with whether you could, you never stopped to consider whether you should. I use that quite a bit. Mary, for whatever reason, uh, latched onto the line of, uh, we have a T-Rex. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> we have a T-Rex. <laughs> My runner-up would be uh, God creates dinosaurs, God destroys dinosaurs, God creates man. Man destroys God, man creates dinosaurs. My third runner-up just has to be the Jeff Goldblum laugh. Ha <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah. Or, or, or when you gotta go, you gotta go. I love that as a kid so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, change one thing, Chris. I don't want to be Team Chad for this, but the kids. Yes. They. Wow. I I, I think. I think they're good. Go they, go on though. <laughs> They kind of have like a good bond, but it does. I will resonate with Chad. It's like, you know, someone has to save Tim's butt. Um, and I mean, female power, you know, I'll give it to Lex, female power, but just, you know, him getting shocked, him getting chased by raptors, that kid needs a lucky rabbit foot or something. So I would just try to redo that a little bit, you know, maybe equal the odds some more with Lex getting in some uh, sticky situations and maybe Tim help or Ellie help or, you know, someone help. Or you could have consolidated them into like one additional adult and you'd still be okay. Tim Lex, made Lex, Grant think. not hate kids anymore, which was a big theme in the movie though. So it didn't have to be. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I support this. I'm over here doing my good all right all right chad i'm asking about that book have you read this book by so-and-so hey the book by so-and-so it's the look on like alan's face like that just cracks me up still so chad if you had to change one thing and not two things who are people who are kids um (laughs) what one thing would you change that's all right i have a backup change one thing so malcolm is almost useless for half of the film and i i'm aware of the book he's even less useful but i just want something more for him after he gets injured something for him to do other than to lay there shirtless which is great but i want more gold bloom he got his butt beat by a t-rex <laughs> <laughs> would you prefer him to just be like I, I i told you so i told you so the whole time i i would love to see some of that just a little bit of you know, now is not the time to be smug, but I'm feeling a little smug. Yeah. So my change one thing is going to be Arnold's hand that Ellie picks up in the room. That's It looks fake. It's In a movie where everything looks really good, the, dis- the disconnected hand from Sam Jackson doesn't look good. Mm. It's like there's a... Like a Halloween, a spirit Halloween store, and it's went and got a fake hand. Looks everything like. looks really good in this movie, except for the hand and i want to say replace it with just some bloody glasses on the floor that you know are arnold's you know that that's all i need that that'll work like when ellie walks in and she sees bloody glasses on the floor that's that's all i need you know he's done the half half burned cigarette yeah yeah sure throw that in there too but uh you know i i'm i'm disappointed that someone didn't say yeah we're not using that hand (laughs) yeah now Chris, before we go in and give our rating, where can we hear you? You can find me on every streaming platform there is out there. Um, my website is whatdoyoudopodcast.com or just use your 
iTunes podcast, Spotify, you name it. What do you do podcast, the career podcast, blue logo, can't miss it. And all of the episodes are on the website. Uh, what do you do podcast.com. Sounds awesome. And it's the time of the show on a five star scale, half star intervals. Chris, what would you rate Jurassic Park? My heart wants to rate it a full five stars, but I just can't do that. I'll say four and a half. What makes your brain talk louder than your heart? I want to say it's the most perfect movie ever, but I know it's not just because of some of the small, you know, like I said, the potted plant and the fence scene. Like now that kind of ruins it for me. But yeah, four and a half because the cast, phenomenal. The filming, phenomenal. Everything's phenomenal with it. But I just don't want to give it my full five stars. That way it still leads above all the other movies. Okay. Chad, on a five-star scale, half-star intervals, what about you? Uh, both my heart and head say five stars. I'm a little kid surrounded by dinosaurs with a big goofy grin on my face throughout this entire movie. And I love it, and I look forward to my daughter being old enough, she loves dinosaurs now, to share this majesty with her. All right, time out. I'm changing mine to five stars now because that makes sense. So, yeah, mine's five stars now, too. I love it. That's the first midstream five-star transformation we've had i love it because i don't want to say i forgot about my kids but that's <laughs> like they, they watch they enjoy it and so when i watch it with them and i see it it's like i see myself as a kid with them watching it and that's the exact same reaction i had so yeah that's my justification uh five stars all right and my i'm gonna join you guys in the five star club it had such a big impact culturally it had a big impact on our generation and it still captures people's imaginations you know what to be a movie in 1993 and still look this good i mean there's a lot of movies that come out for 10 years after this that don't look this good and even from a technical standpoint i'm there's nothing to nitpick here and i love it so this is this is cinema at its finest yes excellent chad do you want to help me pick a movie for next time i would love to oh actually i'm sorry next time we're actually going to come back to you with a special uh where we're going to count down the top 10 movies of 2010 in our opinions (laughs) no they're undisputed oh okay yeah we checked them we will be unanimous and it will be a very boring podcast (laughs) i agree (laughs) all right uh chris thanks for joining us man I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And to all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on a Twitter at movies underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated, and we'll put it into the show to make it better. So as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other, and watch more movies. Chad? History isn't kind to men who play God.